I know, I know. I said I wasn't going to preach from up here anymore. I knew it was coming. I could feel it. I could feel it coming from some of you. And I know who you are. Now, you know, I realized uh, I woke up this morning. For those of you who may not know, I have really special issues with my knees. And I'm really excited today. I'm in a good mood. I'm feeling really energetic and happy. And I just I had a feeling that if I was down on the floor, I would walk all over the place and I would do more damage <laughs> than I really need to do today. <laughs> so this actually keeps me standing quite still as, you know, that's what this does. <laughs> so unfortunately, so, so I'm, I'm going to be up here for, for today, just for today. Last time we were together, um, for those of you who uh, were here uh, with us, um, I began my sermon with um, a prayer that we all sang together um, with and for each other um, because it felt like a really important way to begin. And so uh, I've, one thing I have absolutely committed to doing is, is starting every sermon this way so that we can begin this moment together. Does that make sense? Um, because we all have something to offer each other. We all have something um, to share and to say. And so, so we will begin. I'll, I'll go through it once. Um, myself, and then invite you to join in with me. The words actually can be found um, on your, in your order of worship. So if you, would, if you need that to follow along, feel free. May I be light in you. May you be light in me. Into our hearts, into our souls. Let love abide. May I be love in you. May you be love in me. From this place out to the world for all time. Join with me now. May I be light in you, may you be light in me, into our hearts, into our souls, let love abide. May I be love in you, May you be loving me from this place out to the world for all time. Bless you. Thank you. There's a phrase that I hear a lot these days. Look at how far we've come. Look at how far we've come. There was a time when I wouldn't have dared tell anyone in school that I was queer or trans. And now, there are over 4,000 gay straight alliances, gender sexuality alliances, diversity caucuses, you name it, all over the country supporting the needs of LGBT students in high schools and colleges. Look how far we've come. We used to look to, we used to have to look to Supreme Court cases like 
Bowers versus Hardwick, which is a 1986 case, to tell the story of what the legal system thought of us and our lives. At one point in the opinion, and I'll never forget, I read this opinion my first semester of law school. Um, it's hard to get out of my head. It still sits there. But at one point in that opinion, it says that the right to privacy protects intimate aspects of marriage and family relationships and procreation and conception and child rearing from state interference and no connection between family and marriage on the one hand and homosexual activity on the other hand can be demonstrated. No connection. But now, now local and state governments all over the country are heeding the words of the 2013 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Windsor versus United States, which reads, what has been explained to this point should more than suffice to establish that the principal purpose and the necessary effect of the Defense of Marriage Act are to demean those persons who are in a lawful same-sex marriage. This requires the court to hold, as it does now, that DOMA is unconstitutional as a deprivation of the liberty of the persons protected by the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. Look at how far we've come. There was a time when our society was so stuck on only recognizing male and female as the only two genders that many of us would never have thought to disclose our transgender or gender non-conforming identities in any public forum. But now we have folks like Laverne Cox showing up on the front cover of Time Magazine. Laverne Cox was the first African-American trans woman to both produce and star in her own TV show. And she, of course, as some of you probably know, is on Orange is the New Black. Phyllis Fry was sworn in in 2010 as the first openly identified transgender person to serve as a judge in this nation. Diego Sanchez was the first openly identified transgender man to become a congressional staffer on Capitol Hill. And next week, next week in celebration of pride, Boston University's Episcopal chaplain and a good friend to many of us, the Reverend Dr. Cameron Partridge, will be the first openly transgender priest. Sorry, I just love saying that. First openly transgender priest to preach at the historic Washington National Cathedral. Look how far we've come. The month of June is this marvelous time where the tireless efforts of people of every gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, ability all across the land and our excitement about being able to fully live into the truth of who we are come together. When I joined Metropolitan Community Church, I was happy to hear that Pride Sunday is considered a high holy day. No joke. 
No joke. It's a high. It's it's right up there with with Easter, and Christmas. So you know, we dust off all of our special clergy garments, all those really ornate and elaborate dresses that we like to wear, <laughs> and we break out our rainbow and our leather stoles. Yes, yes. That's for another conversation. If you want to talk to me about that, we can. Where we all put on all of our all of our best stuff and bear witness in the streets to the fact that we are loved, we are free, and we are called. It can and should be a time of colorful celebration for all of us. Took me some time though to recognize that it should also be a time of intense reflection about who we are and where we're going. I didn't, and this is the honest truth, I, I didn't really understand why my parents didn't see my coming out as a cause for celebration. I <laughs> recognized joy in my life for the first time ever at that particular point, and it felt like things were possible that I could never have imagined were possible before. So why not celebrate? Like, that's worth celebrating, right? If you find joy, that's worth celebrating. <laughs> I assumed it had everything to do with the fact that they were living lives that honestly were, I thought were going to be very, very different from my own. You see, I really wanted just queerness everywhere. Everywhere. Queer everywhere, all the time. Everywhere and all the time. I used to say, to, I used to say this all the, well, I'm about to say it right now, um, that, that I think everyone on the planet is queer. And, and, you know, that's, that, that too is another really big conversation that I'm not getting into right now. So if you want to talk to me about why I think that is, please do. But just queerness everywhere. Bright lights, big city, lots of places to go, people to see, things to do. So, you know, I moved to New York City. Because that's what you do when you grew up in Georgia, in the South. And you need to see rainbow flags everywhere. You, you move to New York. I didn't have a care in the world. And as far as, I'd concerned, I'd, as far as I was concerned, I'd fulfilled the two biggest missions in life. One, I moved out of the South. And two, those aren't really my missions much anymore, but at the time it was to move out of the South and to do work that I loved, which I was also doing. While I was living it up, and I, I really, really was, um, just part of the reason why I struggle with my knees to this day. <laughs> Let's just be clear. <laughs> I danced a little too much in my 20s. Um, um, while I was living it up, my parents were keenly aware, especially my father, of something I hadn't thought about very much and honestly didn't have time for. While I had some victories to celebrate, in my mind, there were still far too many people who did not have a single victory to celebrate. One of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that my folks didn't see my coming out as a victory. I know that. But one of the things that kept showing up in my dad's critique of the world, not so much of me, but really of just humans in general, um, was that 
humans can get, we humans can get so settled in our own comfort that we can forget about the deep need of others. He talked about and, and often became frustrated by this all the time. And you know, if we all can't celebrate, then our work isn't done, is it? I know we've all heard this in one way or another. Unless we're all free, none of us are free. But it's a pattern, right? It's a pattern we've seen in our various movements forward throughout time. There may be a wave of progress, and that is a bright and beautiful, beautiful moment to celebrate. But it may not have as much of an impact on everyone we think or expect it will. Or what we may see as progress may not be considered progress at all to others. I'm particularly reminded of that pattern this week, not just because of pride and all of the ways we struggle and strive to be treated with dignity and respect um, as queer and trans folks, but also because June 19th marks the observance of Juneteenth. It's always, it's always been an upsetting thing to me that I didn't really know what Juneteenth was until probably the end of college, beginning of law school. And ever since, it has really helped shape my perspective about what freedom looks like and what it doesn't. On June 19th, 1865, two and a half years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, Major General Gordon Granger, accompanied by Union soldiers, no less, landed at Galveston, Texas, and read General Order Number 3. He spoke these words. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality, personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. Two and a half years. The tidings of freedom reached the approximately 250,000 slaves in Texas gradually as individual plantation owners informed their bondsmen over the months following the end of the war. The news brought forth an array of personal and community celebrations, the first of which were used as political rallies to teach freed African Americans how to vote. But opportunities to gather and celebrate have taken different shapes over the years, and in fact, during the Civil Rights Movement, there was quite a bit of a lull. There weren't nearly as many Juneteenth celebrations in Texas and around uh, the country during that period, but they picked up again uh, in the 70s. These celebrations included public entertainment, picnics, family reunions with 
pageants and parades and, and ball games. Um, I even recently had a conversation with my mother who informed me that when I was a child, our family, um, part of our family reunion was centered around Juneteenth, which I had never known and no one had ever really talked to me about. However these celebrations were organized, Juneteenth has provided a public opportunity to recall that milestone in human rights that that particular call to freedom represents for African Americans. But here's the thing. It took two and a half years for many of those folks to even know that their lives were supposed to be changing for the better. And even after the order was read and plantation owners began informing their workers, not much actually changed for many of them. An order had been signed that was meant to secure freedoms for people of African descent, that the systems of governance and understanding around them weren't prepared to either promote or enforce in any legitimate way. Do you hear what I'm saying? Laws were passed, but the world around folks for whom those laws were meant to protect, the world wasn't prepared for what to do with that. There's wisdom in that for us in every place where we seek change and transformation. And this was what my father was most afraid of for me. He wanted a better life for us than he and mom had growing up in the 1950s and 60s. But he knew that despite how free we were supposed to be to live life to the fullest, he also knew that systems of oppression were still as much a part of my life as they were his. I wasn't as aware of that because I was, I was living it up. Not having a care in the world. These systems just didn't call to mind nooses or white sheets anymore. Instead, they took on different forms. These systems of oppression look more like policies that have particularly negative impact on same gender loving people. Or they look like illustrations on restroom doors that don't honor a broader mosaic of gender identity and expression. Or they look like the prison industrial complex. Or they look like overproduction and waste that's doing harm to the earth. And yes, sometimes, sometimes those systems can and do look like well-meaning folks who want desperately to do the right thing by people of differing experiences, but because they have absolutely no idea how, ultimately end up doing more harm than good. So the systems of oppression that are alive and well today may not seem as obvious as they used to. And so it can be easy sometimes to say, look how far we've come. 
without looking beyond what exists within our own reach. Probably more than anyone else on earth, my mom knew that dad had been denied dreams and opportunities that make up a list that's too long to name. So they not only worked to ensure that the same disparities they experienced would not also land at my doorstep. Dad also reminded us, perhaps in more ways than he realized, to be aware of what was going on beyond our own realm of understanding. And as much as our time and talent will allow to help build up a world in which my freedom is bound up in yours and your freedom is bound up in mine. Vincent Harding is a professor of emeritus of religion and uh, social transformation at the ILIF uh, School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Died on May 19th. It's a remarkable, remarkable human being. To memorialize him, um, Krista Tippett, folks may be familiar with Krista Tippett, uh, the host of NPR's On Being, aired an interview she did with him back in 2011. During that interview, Harding spoke passionately about how much we have to learn about how to, walk to, how to talk to and engage with one another in ways that matter most. He spent a lifetime gauging how far we've come by how far we have left to go. He believed with every fiber of his being that if we are called to be a truly multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious society, we have to embrace our fullest capacities to listen to and learn from one another. To help folks listening understand his point, he told a story that's worth sharing on a day like today and at a time like this. He was at a friend's apartment and there were a number of young people who had been invited uh, to come to talk about some of the things that they were struggling with in community. And he sat down and talked to one of those young people. And he asked, he asked, uh, he asked him, you know, why do you do the, the things that you do? Why do you do the work that you do in the communities that you're in? And the young man said, you know, people tell us all the time that in order to live a better life, we have to get out of the places that are hard and horrible and hurt. And we have to do incredible work elsewhere. But I'm a signpost, he said. I'm a light in the darkness. And Professor Harding took that story to heart and has shared it more than once. He said in the interview, we have to stand in the darkness and open up possibilities that others can't see. If we teach young people to run away from the darkness rather than to open up the light in the darkness, to be the candles, the side, the signposts, then we're doing great harm to them and the communities that they come out of and are called to serve. <laughs> 
our call is to be those signposts, to be those candles, especially now, and especially in ways and places that give us the opportunity to lean into the struggles and disparities that still exist in our societies and communities. So as I stand here in my rainbow stole as an openly identified trans clergy person of color who receives more love and support than I know what to do with sometimes, it's true. I also have to remember people like Jane Doe. Jane Doe is, if you don't know who Jane Doe is, She's a transgender teen of color. Who was wrongfully placed in solitary confinement in an adult prison with no charges against her and as a minor who's experienced a lifetime of trauma. She's still in that prison right now. I also have to think about Sonny Kale. Some of you may have heard of. She was kicked out of her school for wearing short hair. I have to think about every child I ever sat with in the middle of the night at Sylvia's place, which is a shelter for queer kids. All of these kids were kicked out of their homes. Some of them have died from being on the street, being forced to do things that no one should ever be forced to do. have to think about all of the people who are homeless because of the employment and economic disparities that plague us. I have to look beyond my reach. And so do all of us. Vincent Harding stressed that all knowledge is available to us if we are willing to seek it. And that knowledge is hard to find if we get satisfied with and stuck in our own victories. And so, as we gather grateful for the gift of life itself, may we do as we prayed today to be mindful that to respect life means both to celebrate what life is and to insist on what it can become. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.